And welcome to Bandora's Palace, a tokusatsu podcast home to monsters in rubber suits, heroes in full body spandex, and giant robots made of other smaller giant robots. I'm Steven. And I'm Pat. And we will be your guides into the campy and awesome world of tokusatsu. And today, we'll be diving into the tubular town of Angel Grove in the more phenomenal world of Saban's Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Now, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the, the series and the franchise that spawned from it, uh, premiered for the first time on August 28th of 1993 as a part of the Fox Kids afternoon TV block. And it was, for a time, the single most popular media franchise on the planet. Uh, what started as a scheme to make an entertaining children's TV show as inexpensively as humanly possible went on to make roughly all of the money in the early 1990s, only dethroned with the rise of our once and future king, Pokemon. The story of the conceptualization, production, and success of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers is its a long one. And it's extremely interesting, but frankly, we don't have the time to go over that in the detail it deserves today. If you're not familiar with that story and would like to hear it, check out the Power Rangers episodes of the Netflix series, The Toys That Made Us. It's uh, it's definitely revisionist history to some degree, intended to shed the best possible light on Saban and not reveal him for the money-grubbing miser that he definitely is towards the people working for him. But they do a good job overall of telling the story. Now, season one of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers is 60 episodes long. But interestingly, only the first 40 or so actually pull footage from Kyoru Sentai's U-Ranger. To make a, a very long story short, once it became clear that Power Rangers was going to make all of the dollars on the earth that anyone ever had, uh, Saban was eager to not let his cash cow run dry. And commissioned the Sentai studio in Japan to produce more source footage for Power Rangers. And so the remainder of season one and the early parts of season two are made with what is known as ZU2 footage, which are morphed scenes that were never in any Sentai episode. They are devoid of any context by design uh, made simply to stand alone so that the Power Rangers production team could build an episode around them. This is its own extreme extremely unique period of Power Rangers production, and we may cover the ZU2 episodes someday just for this reason, because they are so strange. But as we are currently directly comparing Kyoru Sentai ZU Ranger with Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, we will only be watching the stretch of episodes which use ZU Ranger as source material, which goes through episode 40. Now, before we dive in, I do want to set some base expectations for for this show, for our show, uh, as a rewatch program. Uh, firstly, I want to make it very clear that while we know a lot of our audience, most likely most of our audience, is going to be made up of people who are genre fans, who are very familiar with this show that we're watching and probably with the the series in its entirety – we also understand that not everyone will be, and in fact, we really hope that some of you will decide to pick up these shows for the very first time, or at least the first time since your childhood, right along with us. And for this reason, we will not be spoiling future plot introductions and story elements. We will be living within the fiction as we are experiencing it, and we will not discuss events or characters before they happen or are introduced. So you can rest assured that if you are new to this story and experiencing it along with us, we will not be the ones to spoil it for you. Secondly, we will do our best to live within the kayfabe of the fictional universe that we're in. 
it's really low-hanging fruit to pick on the bad guys for being, well, bad at their jobs. And sometimes that's absolutely warranted, but ultimately we have to recognize that we're watching a kid's TV show. If the question is ever some variation of, you big dummy, why didn't you just kill them while they were sleeping or unconscious or tied up, etc., etc., the obvious answer is that it wouldn't be appropriate for six-year-olds, so of course in this universe that doesn't happen. That's not to say that we'll never call the bad guys or the heroes or a myriad of other characters out for being dumb to advance the plot, but we'll generally try to make an effort to take the genre, its tropes, and the target audience into account and not just milk the low-hanging fruit all day. So with that being said, let's dive into the show. And today's episode of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers is the first. In case you hadn't noticed from the fact that we are at the very bottom of the podcast feed. Uh, today's episode is Day of the Dumpster, which aired initially on August 28th, 1993, that date that we just discussed. Uh, it was written by Tony Oliver and Shooky Levy, and it was directed by Adrian Carr. Now, if you're interested in watching along, the entire Power Rangers catalog, including all of Mighty Morphin, is available on Netflix. So if you have that service or have a friend whose password you can borrow off the back of a truck, you're good to go. Uh, now, Pat, do you have any specific memories of this episode? Um, I don't remember. <laughs> it, <laughs> this this episode came out when I was about nine months old. I know I've seen it at least three or four times throughout the years, but you know, it's never really something that's really stuck out to me. It it just kind of. It's always there. I know of it. I know how it works. I know, like, I know where it is in the whole placement of everything. And, you know, a good bit of it is, like, I can recall it right off the top. But the, like, the actual episode itself, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you when I first watched it or anything like that. That's very fair. This is, this is very old children's television. Absolutely. For me, the, the big things that stick out of my memory of this episode are it just being incredibly busy and introducing like a ton of characters and concepts within a very short amount of time where you might expect another show to just like pick a couple characters and build on that over the first few. Like it feels like Power Rangers just throws everything at you like within the first 20 minutes. But yeah. with that being said, I do th remember at least them doing a, a very good job of, of doing a whole lot with a very small amount of time as far as introducing those characters and concepts. So I guess we'll see if those memories hold up or not and, and how well this episode holds up as we go ahead and jump into episode one, Day of the Dumpster. Teleport to us five overbearing and over-emotional humans. No, not that, not teenagers. That's correct, Alpha. I was afraid of that. Now... As we are starting with episode one, and we're starting at the beginning of episode one, let's take a moment to talk about the intro. This is the only time we're going to do this because it's the first time that we're watching it. But let's let's take a moment to appreciate this glorious madness intro. And, and first of all, the theme music, which still fucking slays. It slaps to it's this so day good. in 2020 it is the most 90s like pop metal bullshit you have ever heard in your entire life and and you will still get pumped in your 30s watching it on your couch in your boxers it doesn't matter you want to punch some shit it's fantastic it absolutely is like i was i was sitting here watching it and i was it came on and i'm like mm. first first thing i have in my notes strong opening theme like it's <laughs> it's just it just gets you right there and it's classic and it's nostalgic for us. And it's like this, this is setting the tone for the entire series and it's great. It's, it's super good. Um, I have thoughts about Rita's iconic opening line here, but we're going to get to a lot of that in the episode itself. So I'll save those, put a pin in it though. We will be circling back to your girl Rita very quickly. Um, I do think this intro is maybe the world's most effective, like, 10-second introduction at getting character concepts across quickly and succinctly. Uh, they introduce Jason, who does a badass spin kick. Trini doing, like, her martial arts kata. Zack does a little dance because he's a dancer. Kimberly does her gymnastics. And then Billy is a fucking coward and runs away from putties. Because for season <laughs> one, that's who Billy is. Let me get this out of the way. 
Billy as a character by the end of Power Rangers is one of my favorite characters in the franchise. I oh. absolutely love who Billy becomes. Season one, Billy is the dirt fucking worst. Yeah, he has he has quite the character arc, but season one, he is uh, he's used for tech babble and that's about it. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. It's, it's not great. And it's not even necessarily the character's fault. It's, it's obviously like the situations he's put in and the way that he's written. But again, like this is a superhero show. I watch it for the big fucking heroes. And when, when your instinct is to run away and hide, you are not that. So not, not a fan. In the intro, they also, and this is a choice. They show the Megazord at literally every stage of construction in the intro, including the tank mode that they never fucking use, uh, but which looks extremely destructive. And I wish that we could really see that shit kick ass sometimes. They also show the almost completed version, like mid transformation sequence with the Tyrannosaurus head on it. And why isn't that just the Megazord? Because that shit looks fire. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that aside, it, it does seem really strange. It seems like a strange decision to show the giant transformed robot in the intro, like on the first episode before we've even gotten to know like the characters or their powers or literally anything. That said, this is going to come up a couple times throughout this episode. Overall, I'm willing to give Saban a pass here because this was an incredibly novel concept and he had to sell it to kids on the fucking quick. And I feel like this was probably a, a, an attempt to do that. And there's there's no denying that they were effective. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when the show itself opens, it opens on a celestial body. I A planet, it looks planet sized. I would think it's a planet. Maybe it's a planetoid. It's 1000% not Earth's moon. It is like mauve and has weird streaks on it it's not an asteroid it's it's a fucking planet and it zooms in on two astronauts landing in their spaceship and walking on the dusty surface of this very alien place and it has atmosphere it has a blue fucking sky with what looks like both the earth and another enormous celestial body visible and huge in the sky where the fuck are we because the only explanations i have ever heard for the location of this sequence are on like an asteroid or a meteor that's passing close by the earth but that is 1000 percent not what this fucking is like asteroids don't have atmosphere how is there a planet this close to the earth without killing everyone Look, you know I'm a I'm a big Star Wars fan, right? And that desert 100% looks like freaking the opening shot of Tatooine where 3PO and R2D2 are just running around after the the escape pod crash. Yeah, I mean it's it's a desert planet, that is for certain. It, it's I don't know if that's what they were trying to emulate, although I mean that's that's a pretty good callback if it was. I I literally cannot wait to watch ZU Ranger just to know what this is actually supposed to be. Yeah. But we gloss right over it in Power Rangers, which is uh, going to be a recurring theme, and that's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the astronauts find a glowing red light and come on this massive, like, bronzish metal container with a glowing red gem on top. Which they immediately call a space dumpster. Yeah. yeah they, they, like, they, how oh, are you it, supposed to know that? It's an ancient space dumpster. How, why would you assume that aliens throw their fucking rubbish in a bin with a big old ruby, a, a magically glowing ruby on top? Like, it's fine. It's fine. They assume it's an ancient space dumpster, and apparently it is because everything inside of it is trash. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they open the lid to see what's inside, and it's, it's monsters, guys. It's, it's full of monsters. Surprise. <laughs> uh, so the astronauts scramble and fall on their asses and they run away from the four monsters that emerge uh, as one calls inside the dumpster for Rita to wake up because they're free. Now, Rita's hench monsters stumble all over each other to, to help her out as she grouches at them for getting in the way and making her step in a puddle. And Because there's definitely a puddle. On yeah, on this desert, desert planet. planet. <laughs> yes, yes, tons of moisture here. Uh, and then she immediately blasts magic to demolish the dumpster she came out of because maybe she thought they were just going to put her right back in it. All right. <laughs> like if I was stuck inside a dumpster for 10,000 years, I'd want to take a little bit out on it, too. Yeah, you're right. It just reminds me, 
me, me and my wife have been watching Tiger King, and it just reminds me of Joe Exotic taking everything he doesn't like, sticking Tannerite in it, and blowing it the fuck up. Um, so yeah, yeah, she's kind of space Joe Exotic. It's it's fine. Uh, and, and she proceeds to taunt the astronauts that they shouldn't leave so soon; they'll miss her coming out party, destroying the nearest planet, which. I mean, it seems like the other big ass thing in the sky is actually closer than the Earth, but maybe that's the moon and she lives there. So, yeah, okay. Earth is definitely fuck off close. I'll give her a pass on that. Yeah. We then cut down to said Earth, where we hear uh, a shout out on the radio to all the kids and Ernie at the Angel Grove Youth Center and Juice Bar, which is maybe the most 90s thing I've ever heard. And we're not even three minutes into the show that or it's just the most Power Rangers thing I've ever heard. And the Power Rangers are the 90s in my brain. Yeah, same same (laughs) thought here. I'm like, okay, Juice Bar, Juice Bar. What what the, the do they have a balance beam in this juice bar? Yeah, what in the well, world. <laughs> it's it's like the YMCA with 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 a fat man who serves juice drinks, it, which is fine. Like, live your truth, Ernie. But it's it's weird. It's there is so it, much room for activities in there. <laughs> there's so much room there's, for activities. There's a balance beam. There's the whole juice bar. There's a karate studio. Well, you see, they, they they built their bunk beds, and then they had room for activities. It's great. <laughs> And and once again, in this shot, we get an incredibly concise introduction to this cast of mysteriously color-coordinated teenagers in a very short period of time. Uh, the camera pans through the, the gym and juice bar first to uh, Kimberly in pink on the balance beam doing gymnastics before panning over to Zach and Jason in black and red sparring. Uh, Zach clearly more agile and creative, like, like, um, rolling and diving and spinning uh whereas jason just like punches real good and beats his ass <laughs> and then we see uh trini doing the exact same kata that she was doing in the the opening sequence uh in in her yellow outfit um and then we're introduced to billy who comes in you know all white karate outfit with all blue accessories um and, and comes over to thank jason for giving him his first lesson um and they all very inconspicuously make a point of saying each other's names in like the first five seconds so like again they don't really like stop and be like oh this is jason he does karate but like very very quickly it's just like boom jason fights boom zach kind of a goofball boom billy nerd done you know you know (laughs) just like that we also see for the first time the entrance of a couple of eccentric characters a large boy in a leather jacket and ponytail and his skinny friend with slicked back hair a bandana and chain necklace combo and a blazer this motherfucker has all the looks first of all (laughs) uh and they enter as always to trombone fart music and are immediately introduced as bulk and skull so bulk and skull approach the girls and start demanding a double date and refusing to buzz off in a scene that does not hold up well in 2020 uh no it doesn't (laughs) (laughs) and and then they are immediately intimidated when zach comes to back the girls up uh they they hand wave him off though that the girls do saying that they don't need the help which enrages bulk and skull who charge at the girls again Mm. Mm. but they but it's okay because they both get flipped and land on their asses haha you see it's funny because they got beat up by girls yeah it it was the early 90s we were dumber then i'm sorry i'm sorry guys um it is nice to see the sleazeballs get what's coming to them but the whole premise that makes this exchange quote funny just feels kind of like icky yeah it's it's real dated at this point it's not it's not good it's not a good look uh yeah but i mean again like it's it was literally 30 years ago just you know uh but as everyone laughs uh the girls tell there there would be suitors that they definitely belong in jason's beginner karate class so in case you couldn't tell we're setting the stage for the next scene uh well not the next next scene because the next next scene the camera pans for the very first time to the moon and this time it is definitely the moon Definitely the moon. Surface is gray. It's pocked with craters. It's it is Earth's fucking moon if you have ever seen it. Except there's a convenient palace just hanging out there. 
Yep, there is a structure, a castle with a big old disco ball at the top of the tallest tower and a neon sign proudly proclaiming it Bandora's Palace. I wonder where we've heard that before. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it should go without saying that this is where the name of our show originates. We'll be discussing this obviously next week, but Bandora is the name of Rita's equivalent character in the Sentai series that we'll also be watching on this podcast, Zeo Ranger. Uh, now, obviously in Z-Ranger, it would make sense for the palace where Bandora lives to be Bandora's palace. However, there is no Bandora in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. This name is an utter mystery within the fiction, uh, and they never explain it. They simply pan over it in every single establishing shot of the villains on the moon and never draw attention to it, which frankly worked when I was a kid. I never noticed personally. Me neither. But it's one of those weird, like, what the fuck Easter eggs left over from the dual nature of the footage of this show. And that's why we took our name from it, because those are a lot of the things that we want to talk about. So here's one of our – actually, I think this is technically our second one in this episode, and we're only like four minutes into it. But it's it's a very prominent one. Yeah. Now, within the palace, we see shots that will become very familiar with time because they are reused – constantly through the series uh first rita looking through her spyglass at the earth uh, she declares happily that she likes what she sees and immediately calls out to finster who is the fussy white monster to make some putty patrollers uh, the camera pans to a large blue black monster in gold armor i wonder who this could be uh, who tells rita that he'll lead them to conquer the earth and she cackles like a maniac like just a real tight 15 seconds in and out, and then we're back to the youth center juice bar combo. Now, when we pan back, we see that Jason is teaching the previously mentioned karate class, and Billy is among the pack of students, a surprising number of late teens for what presumably must be a beginner's white belt class, or, or near to it. Billy is clearly struggling to keep up, as their friends all watch and appear to be concerned, and Jason actually stops the class to give Billy some direct help, but he becomes discouraged and says that he'll he'll never get it, to which Jason, again, being like the really like good friend and really compassionate and understanding person that, that he already very clearly is, asks the class an academic question. Uh, he asks them what martial arts helps to develop, to which Billy immediately throws his hands up like the fucking nerdy is uh, and recites the answer verbatim. And Jason praises him for this. Uh, and you can literally see on his face how this immediately helps to boost his self-esteem and confidence. Like, I really like this sequence because it tells you so much about these two characters in, again, by showing, not telling. And it, it's fantastic. Yeah, it it immediately brought to mind how good a leader Jason appeared to be like of, of all of them. He's, you know, he's up front in front of the class. He's teaching. He can see when someone's struggling and knows how to help them in a way that, you know, is compatible for their style. Yeah. And, and here's this guy who's, who's tall. He's handsome. He's built like a fucking brick shit house uh, with, with arms, the size of tree trunks. And like he, you know, when you're a teenager, and especially like in the 90s, early 2000s, when you were a teenager, like life is about social currency and he has nothing to gain and everything to lose by being friends with a kid like Billy. And yet he so clearly does not give even half a shit. And, and part of that is this show, obviously, which is somewhat utopian, like in regards to like, you know, like, like, like race and class and things like that. Like, you know, it's, it's no, coincidence that our cast of heroes is is a rainbow of different backgrounds and frankly that's one of the things i really love about this show is that it was so ahead of its time and progressive on on that front less so in others which is upsetting and i'm sure we'll talk about that eventually but like this is one place where like it was like really good and ahead of its time but it says something to me as a kid who as much as i look up to the character of jason always much more closely resembled billy um that jason treats him the way that he does but yeah um at this point bulk and skull return um now also wearing karate geese but with an assortment of jean vests and bowler hats thrown over the top uh they start shoving students out of the way and demanding an advanced course because they're beyond all this beginner hokum to which in what will clearly become true bulk and skull fashion jason does some dope karate moves 
Bulk attempts to imitate them and falls directly on his ass as their dopey music plays and everyone laughs and Skull unabashedly applauds because Jason Narvi is a goddamn national treasure and Skull will always support his friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Did, did you know that Jason Narvi has a doctorate in theater? I did not know he had a doctorate. Power Rangers! Return to the command center immediately for new instructions. Hey gang, I am just cutting in in post uh, because I made a couple of errors uh, in the episode, which I sincerely apologize for when talking about the very legitimate credentials of our boy Jason Narvi, the actor who plays Skull in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And... Jason Narvi does not need any exaggeration because his actual credentials are really goddamn impressive, you guys. Um, when Jason Narvi eventually leaves the Power Rangers franchise, he does so to continue his education, uh, where he receives first his Bachelor's of Arts, then his Master's. And then finally, a PhD in theater studies, which he earned from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Jason Narvi has performed with the American Shakespeare Center, performed in the title role in Henry V, Pericles, and Hamlet. Uh, he has legitimate, like, stage credentials, uh, and he is currently an associate professor and chair in the theater department at Concordia University in Chicago. Uh, the man has, like, legitimate actor cred, uh, and actually recently took a position as an influencer and a brand ambassador for Shout Factory TV's uh, new Tokusatsu channel on Pluto TV streaming service called Tokusatsu. Um, so still very much attached to his roots in Power Rangers and Tokusatsu. Uh, Jason Narvi, we love you, buddy. Uh, you are a phenomenal inspiration, and if you ever want to come on the show, all you got to do is ask. Uh, but yeah, the record is corrected. Let's get back to the show. Back to action. Yeah, yeah. And the chemistry, like, I'm not a big fan of early season one Vulcan Skull. Again, they are much like Billy. They are also characters that will see significant development and change over their runtime. And they will become much more relatable and lovable over that period of time. But like, even now, there is an undeniable chemistry between Jason Narvi and Paul Schreier. And it's funny because they didn't know each other before they started working on this show, but they have become lifelong best friends through this job. Um, and, and like, you can see that in them when they are on camera, even at the very beginning. And I, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. They just, they, they work out real well. They balance bounced off each other incredibly well. Absolutely. So then after after Bulk embarrasses himself for the, the second but not the last time of this episode, uh, we then time jump. Uh, the class is over. Everyone is back in their street clothes. And we, we got to take a moment to talk about this, guys. This is the first of Jason's several extremely specific looks. He doesn't have a ton of outfits on this show, certainly fewer than the girls and particularly Kimberly. But man, Jason's outfits are always a choice. <laughs> <laughs> This very large man is wearing a flannel hoodie sweater with the arms just fucking cut off because sun's out, guns out, motherfucker. Uh, along with bright red shorty short gym shorts. And it's ironic because I know on like a real life personal level that Jason's actor, Austin St. John, is by far the youngest person on the cast. He's genuinely only 18 or 19 years old, maybe even 17. He was very young when this was recorded, pretty close, if not at the intended age of his character. But this bronzed god of a man with his massive python legs covered in like dark bushy hair does not remotely pass for a high schooler much more so even than david yost the actor who plays billy who is genuinely approaching 40 and i'm amazed that as a child i bought it though i is i suppose when you're young enough everyone bigger than you is just old so it works for kids yeah i mean i don't have nearly as much of an issue with with the way he looks because where I went to high school and the people there, you could have anyone looking from, you know, 13 to you just swore on your life they were approaching 30. And, you know, you know, they're like 15. 
I just as as a 33 year old man, I look at 18 year old Austin St. John and I want to call him sir. So (laughs) (laughs) just does not strike me as a child. Um, Now, again, as they're sitting there, everyone is encouraging Billy, telling him how well he did and how he's off to a great start. And again, he's having none of it, giving them the I don't know, guys, I just don't think I'm very good. And. As, as he's throwing his little pity party, uh, they're approached for the first time by the infamous Ernie of the Angel Grove Youth Center slash Juice Bar with a tray of the aforementioned juice when suddenly earthquake and of course ernie and his tray full of assorted juices goes right into bulk's head as everyone flees the building this is definitely the beginning of a trend it feels like for this first run of episodes bulk and skull exist to have goopy shit thrown on them um although if you look closely there's actually a really cool touch where after the tray goes on bulk and bulk gets all gross skull picks up a half full glass and just starts to drink from it and it's fantastic (laughs) I mean, you can't let that stuff go to waste. Yeah, right? It's free juice. Why not? Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, earthquakes happening. Beams and tubes are falling. Like, they're using the, all the Star Trek camera tricks of shaking the camera, and the actors are just like, whoa! Like, it's... They're doing a lot here. And then we have a sudden pan to a strange, unexplained, temple-like building in the desert. And we cut into a, a sci-fi room, which looks right off the trek of the aforementioned 1960 Star Trek, to a weird little robot man who is clutching his teddy bear and screaming that this is the big one and we're all going to be destroyed. Before the camera then shifts to a big face in a tube, which immediately lectures Alpha by name to get his fucking shit together. Uh, clearly, this is Rita, and he demands that Alpha teleport five overbearing and emotional humans, a line which literally everyone gets wrong because of the Mandela effect. Alpha laments the presence of teenagers in his private sanctum before acquiescing, and we pan back to our new friends who are suddenly engulfed in color-coded light, which streaks through the desert before flying into the chimney of this weird building. So we're literally, at this point, I checked, we are seven minutes in, an old head in a tube is abducting miners. This is fantastic. It really felt like it was farther than seven minutes in. Well, bear in mind, like, this is a tight 20-minute episode. Like, there is not an ounce of time wasted. It went quick. But yeah, like, this is the moment, really, where this goes from being, like, teen sitcom to sci-fi show. Like, obviously, like, the Rita stuff was kind of weird, but, like, this is, I think, the most blatantly, like, supernatural or abnormal thing that we've seen so far. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I, I guess maybe not, but I think the reason it strikes me as so strange is because it directly ties back to our cast of characters, whereas, like, the the stuff on the moon is just happening on the moon. Um, Like, this brings it all together. Right. Now, our heroes emerge, uh, materialize, mostly scared and confused. Kimberly clearly channeling that big clueless energy that was so important in the 90s by proclaiming that they're not at the mall. Uh, and, and Billy in particular is immediately taken in with their surroundings, playing with buttons and marveling at the technology before being slapped on the wrist by Alpha and told to knock it the fuck off. Then a head guy zaps into his tube, which I guess he's not in all the time, which is strange uh and he greets them as zordon an interdimensional being trapped in a time warp and our robot friend introduces himself by his full name alpha five and no one freaks out when this giant head appears in a tube they all just be like oh okay that's cool dude in a tube whatever no like oh my god what the hell is that where where did i go who hit me in the head yeah and like like, we get the, the expected exposition scene, right? Where Zordon starts explaining that the world is under attack and they need help to defend it. And all of these kids are immediately skeptical to varying degrees, and rightly so. Like, you can see it on their faces. They're shaking their heads. They're frowning as they're being told that they've been chosen to channel dinosaurs and save the world. But again, whether this is through like careful character decisions or just really poor acting range, because he was a child who'd never acted before. Like Jason is stone cold serious through all of this and is visibly paying close attention. He doesn't understand what he's being told or what's happening any better than his friends do, but he's taking it seriously in a way that they don't appear to be. And I think that again, that's, Whether intentional or not, that's a really compelling character moment for him. Yeah. 
also Zordon is showing them scenes on the viewing globe for the first time ever, which he's just like, behold the viewing globe. And they all just turn around and walk to it because apparently they know their way around. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what that is. But but also we get our first ever shot of Rita riding her tricycle in the sky. Oh, that tricycle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I fucking love Rita's tricycle. And again, Zero Ranger, you got to show me what's up with the tricycle, bud. Why? Why is there a tricycle? But yeah, Zordon phases in their morphers and explains that these devices can be used to morph into their powered forms, which Billy quickly clarifies means metamorphosis. And and Trini translates from nerd speak that that means to change. What high schooler doesn't know what metamorphosis is? I, man. Like, I swear <laughs> I had to I had to do projects on that as like an eighth grader. So so put a pin in this. But thus far, it doesn't stay this way. Like, she's a very smart and capable young woman, but in this particular episode, up until this moment, Kimberly is fucking stupid. <laughs> and she, so I feel like, I yeah. feel like Billy was explaining for her benefit, because she has not shown to date that she has two brain cells to rub together. It, it's like the very stereotype valley girl kind of thing. She's playing Alicia Silverstone in Clueless, and thankfully the character evolves beyond that point, but that's definitely where she starts. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Zordon explains that they will power ancient Zords, which again, everyone is fucking baffled by. And I get it like in their shoes, what the actual fuck is this weird head in a tube talking about? And at this point, we get an iconic scene from this first episode. I know for me, at least personally, the one that jumps to memory uh, when I think of this episode where each of our protagonists is assigned their powers based on their at least perceived virtues. Uh, Jason is bold and powerful and commands the Tyrannosaurus. Zachary, clever and brave, commands the Mammoth, which, again, easy pickings here, but these are repeatedly called, like, dinosaur powers and dinosaurs, and literally half of them are not, in fact, dinosaurs. Two-thirds, honestly, and it's really stupid. (laughs) Yeah. Kimberly, graceful and smart, commands the Paradactyl, which, really? Smart? Really? Uh, Of this group of teens, Kimberly is the one who deserves the adjective smart right now? Hmm. Okay. (laughs) Okay, Zordon. (laughs) I feel like what what Zordon is saying is, graceful and I know nothing else about you, so we're going to go with smart. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Billy is patient and wise and commands the Triceratops, which, uh, alright, I guess. Yeah. Sure. And Trini is fearless and agile, which... Minor spoilers, one of the very first episodes, like in the first run of five, is about Trini being really fucking scared. It's so- literally the next episode. <laughs> literally the second episode. <laughs> so again, kind of really, really. Okay. Okay. Fear- fearless. Cool. <laughs> Let's go with that. Yeah. No one asked for my criticisms of a 30 year old children's show that made all of the money on the planet. It's fine. So. Yeah, they're given their morphers, they're explained kind of their role and and what they will channel, and the kids are having none of it, and just immediately bounce out. They're just like, nah, bye, uh, and hit the door as Zordon bids the power to protect them for the very first time, and immediately then allows these children that he abducted to attempt to walk home through the desert like an asshole. With Uh, (laughs) his property, none of them gave back the morphers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they and, just straight up stole his stuff and walked out. And Kimberly immediately calls him on his bullshit. Like, they're walking away, and she comments that he could have dropped them off in town. And, like, yeah, seriously, Zordon, what the fuck? <laughs> so, we pan back to the moon, and Rita is furious that Zordon is meddling. Uh, this is the first time we, we see, but certainly not the last, that Rita knows exactly what is happening in the command center at all times, which seems like a bit of, of a security oversight. Um, but she demands that Finster hurry up with the putty patrollers. And this, as is most moon footage in season one, is exclusively Sentai footage. And it's really good Sentai footage. Uh, as we see Finster, this this monster character in full costume, casting the putties and molds, then putting them in his monstermatic machine, pulling the lever, the pipe, sh- pipe shakes up, and boom, putties come out. Uh, and it's really cool. And Rita has a good cackle as she sends them to murder children. 
So we pan back to our heroes walking in the desert. And Jason at this point is actually attempting to convince his friends that they should hear the weird tube man out. And they immediately dismiss him as insane because clearly he is. <laughs> Obviously. And this is actually like a really cool cinematography moment because the perspective of the scene shifts slightly to like a circular camera with a crosshair and it's Rita's telescope, which I, I think is like a, a really neat camera trick as it, it pulls back to the moon without actually like cutting to black. But it cuts back to the moon base and Rita blasts her magic wand down at the desert and the teenagers. And there are suddenly putties surrounding them. I'm not sure if she zapped putties to the earth or, or what, but she shoots, they duck, boom, putties. Now, Gentle listener, if you are listening to this show and you are somehow unfamiliar, if you have never watched Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and never intend to, you're just going to listen to us uh, describe it to you for 40 episodes, which thank you, first of all. Uh, but putties are the the mooks, if you will. They are the, the base level henchmen of the bad guys in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and they are men in gray gimp suits. <laughs> there, there's no there's no nice way to put this. Um, they have different glove appendages. Like some of them have like a hooky thing. Some of them have like a catcher's mitt. And they have gray rubber masks with like like weird, simple, like clay sculpted faces. It's it's a whole aesthetic to be certain. And they make a weird sound the whole time they're doing shit. It's it's a whole thing. Um, but I I will say unashamedly that these are if not the best like henchman level mooks in the entire series they are easily top five because they managed to get so much character and personality out of those weird faceless gimp suits and it's fantastic yeah they i mean they're they're real good they they definitely stay in memory you know you you say hey you know you talk to someone and be like hey it's the putty patrol they're gonna know exactly who it is right offhand like they're they're not so detailed that you have to, like, figure out who it is, but you know exactly what, what's going on as soon as you hear it. Absolutely. So for the very first time, these teens start fighting the putties. And this is the first time we get, like, a real fight scene from them. And period. Um, and it's a fight scene where they are not morphed. They are just kids and plain street clothes, which is something that the Power Ranger series as a whole has moved greatly away from in more recent years. And it's something that I've personally missed. And I don't think I realized how much I missed it until I started watching this scene, because it's very good, actually, just watching these kids throw down with these putties. And again, each one is kind of putting their own stink on it. Zach is is doing his, his dance fighting. Jason is just beating them mercilessly. Uh, Trini is fighting very precisely with like rapid quick strikes and, and Billy is demanding a timeout to put his glasses in his front overalls pocket before running away because that's his stink on it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Now, Kimberly isn't doing much better. She's also very much not a fighter, but she she's a gymnast. She's an athlete and yeah. she does like kind of hold her own. But one by one, starting with Billy and then Kimberly, then Zach, Trini and finally Jason, they get overwhelmed and they get thrown in a pile. At which point, desperate, Jason points out that the morphers are supposed to give them power and they decide to try because it's better than dying lost in the desert. And we get our very first morph to battle these putties. Bear that in mind. They are morphing to save their lives from these putties. So we get the morph sequence and we see our ranger team come together and in costume, posing for the first time with weapons at hand. And we immediately cut back to the command center where Zordon says, okay, teleport them to the city. These putties don't fucking matter, but Goldar's <laughs> over there. So this establishes that Zordon was aware that these children were being attacked, was capable of saving them at any time, and chose to let them flirt with death in the hopes that they would become his perfect child soldiers. Zordon is truly history's greatest monster. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. Not wrong at all. So, our, our heroes disappear in a burst of light once more, and they arrive back in Angel Grove, and Goldar appears, the, the winged blue monster with golden armor that we saw previously in Bandora's Palace, along with a whole different squad of putties. And we get our first real fight scene of the show at this point. Billy is suddenly a competent and confident fighter, which I guess we just attribute to the power and the metamorphosis, but 
that's really the only real incongruent character note. Again, Kimberly was never a fighter, but she is a gymnast. And even more of her fighting style is very like agile and bendy, uh, which is very fitting for her character. Trini's style changes a lot. Trini does get like murder face brutal, but I just I, personally, I always attributed it to the fact that she's suddenly a lot stronger. Like she's still like, she's still striking very quickly and very precisely. It's just now like she like punches you and you go in the fucking ground and you stay there. God damn it. Because <laughs> Trini just fucking said so. Um, yeah. Trini's a monster. True. And another, like, just kind of interesting note in general about the relationship between Sentai and Power Rangers is in not all series, but in a lot of them, a lot, a lot of them, the Yellow Ranger and the Sentai is male. And that is the case here. When, when we meet our Yellow Ranger and ZU Ranger, it will be a man. And so I think that's frequently why Yellow Rangers are such vicious fighters, despite being like very petite, pretty girls in Power Rangers, because that is not who they are at all in Sentai. Right. So worth knowing, we cut back to the moon where Rita screams at her underlings because the putties are losing, which they've barely even fought at this point. Like they've exchanged a couple of licks, but it's the first episode and they got a lot to fit in and the minutes are ticking. I get it. Uh, and so Finster suggests that she use her spells to empower Goldar. So we get our very first ever iconic magic wand, make my monster grow. Or in this case, magic wand, make my Goldar grow. She throws her magic wand, Goldar grows real big, and starts just chuckling to himself and stomping through the city. And this is the point in the episode where it became painfully obvious to me that the person voicing Goldar in this episode is not the Goldar voice that we become accustomed to throughout all of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. This is a very different person, and it was very jarring to me when it first hit me. But again, it's it's episode one, like, changes happen in production. No, no harm, no foul. Yeah. Uh, we then get one of those great Sentai footage scenes where our heroes each pose and taunt the bad guy individually before they call their zords for the very first time. And I still, to this day, absolutely love this particular zord summoning sequence. I, I think one of my favorite things about this era of Sentai, about the 90s Sentai and Power Ranger series, is that for these types of sequences, they're very clearly using the actual toys of the Zords as their models. And it's just fucking brilliant because then when kids get those toys, when they beg mommy, mommy, I need a Megazord and their mom buys it for them to make them shut up and they play with them. They look just like in the show, which is, is brilliant, but the Zords individually leave their hidey holes. Uh, the Tyrannosaurus from fiery tar pits, mammoth from a glacier, Triceratops from the desert, saber tooth from the jungle and the pterodactyl from a volcano, which is kind of wild. <laughs> a literally erupting volcano in the middle of somewhere. <laughs> which happens, A, every time they call the pterodactyl, which has got to be terrible for the local ecosystem. And B, either these zords run, like, ridiculously fast and destroy everything in their wake, or there are an incredibly diverse set of biomes within easy reach of Angel Grove, California. <laughs> but that's fine. Uh, our heroes jump into their cockpits and they each sign off with Kimberly commenting on the high quality stereo the stereo. system. The stereo. <laughs> uh, Kimberly is is very quippy, like from episode one, and that is one character trait that never goes away. Before immediately going Megazord mode, which personally, if I have one complaint about Zords, it's that they might as well not individually exist most of the time because they just show up to become the big robot. And some of my favorite moments as far as giant fights are concerned are when the Zords individually get a chance to fight and shine. But we will be getting none of that in this first episode. We are going full throttle for the big gun. We got to sell those toys. So they start the Megazord sequence and Billy and Trini comment on how intuitively they understand how to pilot their Zords, which again, presumably comes with the suits. And I have to eat my own words, actually, because earlier in this episode, I said that I really wished that they fought in tank mode. And in episode one, in this episode, they do fight Goldar in that intermediate tank mode of the, the Megazord for like three seconds, but still they do it. And it might be the only time in the series they do this, but it fucking rules. It is absolutely absolutely dope they're just shooting lasers from guns and eyes and goldar's blowing up and it's it's brilliant they blow that fucker back it's great like i i forgot that it actually fights in tank mode <laughs> just you know remembering back yeah and I, watching I, it watching it in tank mode it's like oh yeah 
why don't you just do, do this that. all the time? This is awesome. Long and range I, attacks. I really think this is the only time it ever does that. If not, it's one of a very small handful. Um, but they then form the full Megazord for the very first time to the fanfare of the show's opening theme, and they proceed to just ruckus old Goldar. Like, I will say, like, I watched this fight sequence twice, and Goldar's getting his hits in. He's got a sword, he's slashing at him, they're stumbling, but they're just, like, rope-a-dope, just beating his ass with closed fists, and it doesn't feel like a fair fight. <laughs> real real quick, in our tank mode, Kimberly was in there, yeah? I don't think we got a cockpit shot, which... I'd, I'd have swore we did. Maybe we did. I might have missed that. We might have to go back and check the tape. Um, but yeah, like definitely the the pterodactyl is not actually a part of tank mode. So that would be kind of weird. That's a good Yeah, point. like it comes, it, they, they go into the standing Megazord and there comes the pterodactyl. And it's like, wait, weren't you in the cockpit just a second ago? What happened yeah, here? <laughs> I, I don't think there was a cockpit shot. I think we just heard voiceover of them talking, but may, maybe I'm wrong. It certainly would not be the first time. But yeah, so Megazord punching the shit out of Goldar. Uh, he's on the ropes, and then they summon their sword, uh, the the Mega Sword. And Goldar is immediately unique among Power Rangers villains because he sees the Power Sword and goes, "Oh fuck, I see the writing on the wall here," and he fucking bounces. He dips out, gone, just straight <laughs> disappears. Nope, not even not even having this. Which, sure, it's cowardly, but we'll get to see more of Goldar, which, spoilers, isn't true for most monsters in the show that see that sword. There's a reason Goldar sticks around for so long. Has a sense of self-preservation. He does, which is fairly unique among his species. It's fantastic. Uh, now, at this point, we cut back to Rita, and she's screeching at everyone for their failure and suffering the first of her many chronic headaches. I need an aspirin. How does she know what aspirin is? There's no way that was around 10,000 years ago when she went in the dumpster. I mean, it's a chemical compound. They had space aspirin. It's fine. Don't don't ask about it. It's fine. (laughs) Uh, We cut back to the command center where the new rangers are congratulating each other on their victory. And apparently because they used the powers once to escape certain doom, Zordon's just like, no, you you, you signed the the contract. You're in now. Just takes it for granted that they're 100% on board. Uh, And he hands them down. The three rules which govern them, not to this day in the franchise, but certainly for a very long time. Um, and these kind of form a big part of the framework of the show, like to this day. And those rules are, number one, that you cannot use your powers for personal gain. Number two, that you cannot escalate a battle unless you are forced to. So no using the Megazord to stomp on putties or pick up chicks. Boo. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and of course, number three, keep your identity secret, which... Again, all of these, excepting the third in some of the recent seasons, are staples of the series to this day. Now, at this point, Zack interrupts to express doubt that they are really up to this, thinking that maybe we were lucky, at which point Zordon just bends down and kisses a whole lot of ass, uh, telling them how great they are, that they're the, the greatest superhero team of all time. And they all agree one by one to stick with it until it gets to Kimberly, who gives it the... Oh, I, I don't know, guys. Like, the, the helmet messes up my hair. I, I don't think I can do it. Not! Which is maybe the most peak 90s humor that, that exists. I 100% expected her to say psych. Like, it's it's literally, you could replace her with Borat and the joke would still land. Like, that's that's what this is. Uh, yeah. But the kids, the kids all crack up and Alpha literally explodes because he just can't with these fucking teenagers, which... Same. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They they calm his spazzy ass down. They all put their hands in the middle and give it the jump cheer to Power Rangers. And the episode freezes and cuts to credits. So that is that is our pilot episode. Uh, again, it took a long time to get through all that because... Like, they make really good use of time. A lot happens in that short 20 minutes of television. Um, Pat, what are your final thoughts on this one? Final thoughts... I think it worked out really well for what it was supposed to do. You know, it introduced us to our, our main heroes, gave us overarching traits about them, hooked the kids, showed us the comic relief with Bulk and Skull, gave us the powers, gave us the evil person, gave us the nice the nice dichotomy, who's good, who's evil, and made it entertaining for a child. And I, I thought it went, it did pretty well on that, and you know, based on its 
eventual success, it must have. Yeah, like I personally, for my taste, I think this pilot was extremely busy. Um, like the the Sentai's you Ranger opted for a two part introduction like the, the their first episode is a part one and two and a lot of future seasons of power rangers do the same and i i kind of wish we'd gotten that treatment here i think that everything could have really benefited from more time to breathe that said i i do think they made really good and efficient use of this short time in introducing characters and concepts in a really condensed and concentrated fashion and like this is at the end of the day a, a well-fashioned series introduction if I had my way, if I could go back and, and show run for a 30 year old TV show uh, that was incredibly successful and does not need my opinions, I kind of wish that we had gotten a slower power creep that maybe we didn't see any Zords in the first episode at all. Uh, and then maybe we just got individual Zords in the second and then tank mode in the third. And, and then we don't see the full Megazord until like episode four or five. Like for me personally, that would have been like a really compelling ramp up of, of danger and escalation and power. But I'm also viewing that through the lens of 2020. And we watch TV in a very different way than we did in 1993, where if you missed it, it you never saw it unless it came on as a rerun or you taped it. So yeah. I can also understand why they want to put every cool thing in every single episode so that you don't have to see them all to see all the cool things. Uh, again, it clearly worked. I can only criticize it to such a degree, but I definitely think that there's a valid criticism there. And I think that it could have been interesting if they had handled it differently. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I would, again, in, if I were to go back, I would probably space it out a little bit more too. But, you know, looking at it through the eyes or the lens of a sub 10 year old, I want to see the big things. And that's what gets me there. So seeing that in the first episode, it's like, yes, I love that. I'm going to be back for the next episode because I want to see it again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and like this is everything about this series is like extremely well designed, even like the Mighty Morphin suits are not my favorite suits in all the Power Rangers. I don't love the big white like checkerboard pattern. It's it's not my favorite. Right. But like. It's like it's it's extremely good. Dinosaurs are extremely compelling to young kids. I don't want to get too bogged down in the weeds here, but like, you know, Saban tried to pitch this idea like two or three years earlier, which would have been adapting Bioman. And like, I don't think it would have been successful because I don't think Bioman just had the the appeal that the ZU Ranger suits and Zords and Megazord have to a mass market to hook them on a really novel concept really, really quickly. Like, I, I do feel like this is the perfect storm of dope shit to make it explode. Uh, I don't think it necessarily, like, I think it, that Power Rangers could have been successful if it had started with a different series. I don't think that it would have seen even close to the degree of success that it had with anything but Zoo Ranger. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Dinosaurs were where it's, where it was at. Yeah, yeah, dinosaurs are fucking dope. Even though, again, most of them are not dinosaurs. God damn you, I'm Saban. Did you care at six or seven if they were actually dinosaurs? No, no, they were fucking <laughs> rad. The mammoth is rad as hell. Um, exactly. All right, guys, well, that's going to be the end of day of the dumpster and as such that's the end of our show for today um don't forget you can get at us if you want to talk to us uh let us know what you think of what we're doing give us your suggestions for the show uh, and what you'd like to see us cover next once we are through our wild and fantastic journey through mighty morphin power rangers and kiaru sentai zio ranger uh, you can email us at bandorapod at gmail.com or find us on various uh social media at bandorapod pat where can our listeners find you around the web our listeners can find me on twitter at poke ranger pat and you can find me on twitch when i stream also at poke ranger pat thank you very much pat um and you can find me at bbr jolly on twitter um i don't tweet a lot but i'm there and you can find me there um <laughs> yeah now we will be back next time continuing mighty morphin power rangers uh, unlike 
Mighty Morphin, uh, ZU Ranger actually has a two-parter for an introduction, as we mentioned previously. So to avoid splitting those up, you are getting two Power Rangers episodes this week and two episodes of ZU Ranger next week. Uh, we will be back on Thursday with episode two of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers High Five. As always, I've been Steven. And I'm Pat. And we have to get out of here because we have a splitting headache. <laughs>